Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm Ed Hammond, and my usual co-host Jason Kelly is off this week because he has just had a baby. Uh, so I am joined instead by Brooke Sutherland of Bloomberg's Gadfly, and on the West Coast, brutally early on the West Coast, um, our colleague Ian King, who has done a brilliant job of covering the ongoing uh, tussle between Broadcom and Qualcomm to put together this ginormous semiconductor deal. Um, so I'm just going to quickly recap on where we're up to with things. So Broadcom obviously have made this uh, hostile takeover approach for Qualcomm, most recently valued at, I think, $79 a share, which would be the biggest tech acquisition of all time. Uh, It was all supposed to be basically over by now. There was supposed to be a shareholder vote uh, yesterday on Tuesday, which would have given Broadcom, potentially given Broadcom control of the Qualcomm board and allowed them to push through this deal. But that vote was frozen at the last minute. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the US uh, stepped in and said that they thought there was significant reason to review this. There could potentially be a national security risk and Qualcomm were forced to delay the shareholder vote by 30 days at least. Uh, Broadcom have hit back just this morning and said they think the reasons for this delay are nonsense. They are a long-term investor in the US. They are a good actor. There's no national security concern whatsoever. And they've also committed a $1.5 billion fund to innovate in the US and particularly a commitment towards 5G. Um, But this does seem like a significant hurdle for Broadcom in their attempts to get hold of Qualcomm and particularly for the CEO of Broadcom, Hock Tan. So Ian, I'm going to turn that over to you. Shouldn't they just quit at this point? Well, our indications from from our reporting is that's not going to happen. As you saw, Ed, they responded to the CFIUS Treasury letter saying, look, don't accuse us of not spending. We're going to even spend more than we uh, previously indicated. We're going to put another billion and a half dollars in in the pot. We're going to push innovation in the U.S. uh, ahead. And, you know, they argue that this is really unfair. Hocktown is despite what people might think from his name, is actually an American citizen, has been for 28 years, was educated here, and that the company is originally kind of an agglomeration of old U.S. tech companies and is, in fact, on the way back here. I do have to sort of push back at that a little bit, though, because they are spending more money in the U.S., but it's a $1.5 billion fund, and this is sort of the token amount that companies have thrown out in this wave of of corporate announcements in the Trump era to sort of make themselves appear more patriotic. And I just, it's not that much money in the context of the size of this company, nor in the context of Qualcomm's R&D spending. Or the deal, right? Because it's a $1.5 billion sort of token to lubricate a, what, $120 billion deal. Exactly. And they talk about, you know, 25,000 employees in the U.S. That's not that much. I know, you know, when Hocktain had his ceremony with President Trump to sort of announce the company's incorporation in the U.S., they talked about bringing $20 billion in revenue back. That never made a lot of sense as a number. Broadcom, you know, got a, a little over a billion in revenue from the U.S., including its acquisition of Brocade that goes to like $2 billion. So I don't know where that $20 billion in revenue is going to magically come from. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, as Hawk himself said, there's a lot of food going on on both sides here. And, and I think it helps us, as you just pointed out, to, to break this down. If Broadcom is going to have 25,000 employees in the U.S., Qualcomm has 33,800, mostly in the U.S. Not a huge difference between the two. Um, last year, Broadcom spent about $3.5 billion on R&D. Qualcomm spent 5.5. Clearly a bigger spend. Hawk's argument here, you know, Broadcom's whole argument is, look, we're spending a lot of money on technology 
we just don't need to waste as much as Qualcomm is spending. And that's really the, the, the choice that the shareholders face, regardless of what both sides say to try and please the government, to try and please various other constituents here. What's fundamentally at stake is whether you believe Hawk is is right and that spending on R&D in a more concentrated, targeted fashion is right, or whether you believe that Qualcomm is right, which is, look, we need to go out there, we need to expand, we need to spend more on, on different things. And and we should point out that the CFIUS review is is... is I mean, it's, it's entirely unusual, and the whole nature of it actually is is sort of novel because it came about essentially because Qualcomm requested. They wrote to Sivius and they said, we think you should take a look at this before we even do anything. So Sivius, and as I say, this is a highly unusual move for them. They've come out before a deal is announced and are making all kinds of um, unusual statements, really not so much about sort of foreign acquirers, but more about the difference in these corporate cultures. So they talk about Broadcom having a kind of private equity style approach in terms of cutting costs, whereas they see Qualcomm more as an innovator. It's it's very unusual. It's not really what we think of as the traditional role of CFIUS. But is, and you know, Ian, you can speak to this. Is, is this something Broadcom are really worried about at the moment? Do they think this will blow over and ultimately this will go back to the shareholder vote? They've got to be worried about it because it's a de facto endorsement of one of the major points that Qualcomm has made in resisting them, that basically this is a transaction which is going to struggle to get through regulatory approval around the world if indeed it can actually do that. And if you read carefully what the CFIUS Treasury letter said, it it reads like Qualcomm wrote it. All of the points that Qualcomm made in opposing this deal are in that letter. It's almost like somebody was reading a crib sheet that Qualcomm had written. So clearly it's a concern. Clearly it's not what Broadcom want out there. I don't think, I think it's too early though to be saying that this is the the killer blow and that Broadcom are going to back off. Clearly, based on what they said this morning, they want to see this through. Now, Brooke, you have a a, a contrarian view here. You think Broadcom want out at this point. I I mean, I'm basing that off the fact that you know, they, they reduced their offer after Qualcomm purchased NXP, or sorry, increased its offer for NXP. Um, they left the breakup fee at $8 billion, even though it now includes potentially NXP, which will make the regulatory process a lot more difficult. And just sort of their rhetoric around antitrust has just come off to me as, as lacking. They haven't really taken a lot of these concerns seriously. They've been sort of dismissive and very insistent that they will be able to get this approved in a year. They haven't committed to any sort of behavioral changes or, you know, agreeing to make those if they are in fact demanded by EU regulators or by China, which seems all all but inevitable given that those regulators tend to take a broader view of the market and companies sort of share of the overall supply chain as opposed to specific overlaps like U.S. regulators look at. So just sort of given that, given their inflexibility, it just sort of raises the question of how committed you are to actually seeing this through, in my mind. Um, You know, I know they're also trying to be disciplined on price and they're sort of stretching their financial limits as it is to to maintain an investment grade credit rating at this price. But, you know, I mean, there's a reason why you don't see a $100 billion deal every day. I mean, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of regulatory legwork to go through on these. And they just haven't, for me, been as vocal about some of these issues as I think they should be. Yeah, I mean, you, you raise a good point there, Brooke. I mean, on, on this front, Broadcom is definitely on the defensive, um, and and it's definitely a difficult, thorny issue. And if you've spoken to a lot of investors like we have, they don't know how to model this in terms of the risk of whether this deal happens or not, in terms of 
how this is going to play into what happens to the eventual company, what gets spun off, what has to be spun off, what what gets sacrificed and what's allowed to stay in the company. So it's definitely a concern for investors who, who are really bamboozled by this process. The flip side of that, though, is, uh, as you know, Brooke, and we because we've been speaking about this for a couple of years, Qualcomm is up to its eyeballs in its own regulatory issues and legal issues. And that's also something that's driving investors insane. And part of the reason that Qualcomm is as vulnerable as it is itself. So this whole aspect of, you know, are the lawyers going to win? Are they going to convince the regulators here is, is a tremendous doubt over the deal and also about Qualcomm's standalone future, if indeed that's what happens. Absolutely. And I guess that's that's one of the points I want to make about sort of vagueness on antitrust is how Broadcom hasn't been clear about its plans for Qualcomm's licensing business. And the signals have been that it will wind that down in some way or, or drastically rethink that. And one reason why it's sort of a problem not to have a definite plan is that different regulators around the globe sort of look at licensing for chips in different ways. So some may want different practices than others. And so without sort of a concrete plan, it's hard to know how regulators will look at that. And as you said, it's been a huge issue for Qualcomm as it is with regulators. So that seems to be sort of a key point in any sort of eventual approval of this. Yeah, I mean, we just have to back this out, I think, a little bit for folks is that, you know, it's it's key to point out that Qualcomm is extremely unusual as a technology company and a chip company gets the majority of its profit from licensing technology. That technology is are the fundamental patents, which basically underpin the whole of the cellular industry. If you are using uh, a modern cell phone connected to a modern network, you are basically using Qualcomm's IP. And what happens is companies like Apple, or before Apple got into a dispute with them, Samsung and everybody else, they have to pay Qualcomm a cut of the price of their mobile, of the phone's selling price to, to pay for this revenue. And, and the future of that business, because it's under so much attack, is uh, is what's got Qualcomm into a lot of trouble around the world. And Ian, to be clear, is this is Cepheus is saying what that they think Broadcom would underinvest in that sort of innovative stuff, and that would present a threat to, I suppose, America's dominance in five G and in in the semiconductor space. Yeah, I mean, even at a low ebb, Qualcomm gets six billion dollars a year from licensing fees, which is a tremendous amount of high revenue. Um, you know, of high margin revenue. How does it get that? Well, it gets that because it has all of these patents. It's basically an absolute patent invention machine. What Cepheus is saying is that that's that's a treasure for the U.S. You know, that's something we need to preserve. And we're not sure that that Broadcom, you know, uh, under hot time is going to continue that that massive sort of stride forward. And guess what? If if they don't, then maybe Huawei in China will do that, and that takes away a strategic advantage for the U.S. because. Essentially, the, the the underpinning technology in all mobile phones around the world is, is American right now. So that would sort of, uh, you know, put paid, I guess, to the Broadcom line, which is that Qualcomm have had 3G and they screwed that up. They had 4G and they screwed that up. So why not sort of, why wouldn't they screw up 5G? So Broadcom really is saying like, yes, Qualcomm have all these brilliant ideas and this brilliant innovation, but they actually lack the execution. So if you let us own them, we would keep the ideas and bring that sort of formidable execution that Hocktown is known for. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things at play there. They, they didn't say that Qualcomm has screwed it up. They said Squal- Qualcomm's done a, a fantastic job of positioning its technology at the center of these kind of industry-wide changes, and, and it's done really well in terms of the, the, the science you know, and the engineering. What it hasn't done is made enough money out of these things, that it's the money that it's brought in from being in this tremendously strong position has been frittered away on other 
plans and schemes that haven't paid off. Um, by the way, it gives way too much of its R&D away to its customers and, and does too much for its customers. That, that's the argument Hock is saying, look, dial this back. We can make this a much more profitable company and we can still spend on the basics of R&D. The problem, as I'm sure Brooke will, will point out, is Broadcom is a, is a company that's been making acquisitions. It's grown from a tiddler to this sort of, you know, one of the largest chip companies in the world by making acquisitions. We don't know what happens down the line with one of Broadcom's acquisitions. We don't know what five years down the road looks like. Qualcomm argues, look, five years down the road is the most important thing. That's what you need to be investing in if you want to stay ahead. I want to flip this now. We um, saw this all begin, I suppose, back in November, if you go, when Hock Tan was with Donald Trump in the White House and Trump was welcoming Hock Tan and, and Broadcom as coming back to America. They were going to bring all this revenue. They were going to bring these jobs. They were redomiciling from Singapore to America. We should note they were only really in Singapore for tax reasons in the first place. Now, people, a lot of you know observers and I think investors thought that that shield from Trump would protect Broadcom from exactly this kind of review that they now seem to be uh, subject to. Obviously, it hasn't, and you know, there's a there's a case to be made that the, a lot of people in the defense community they hate Trump, so maybe this was somewhat inevitable. But and this is a tricky one, Brooke. I'm going to throw this to you. But you know, Hock Tan, look, U.S. citizen since 1990, he's worked at some very American companies, PepsiCo and GM. Is there, I mean, is there a sense that this is sort of he's being unfairly targeted? Um, you know, I guess because he's brown. Um. I don't know the answer to that. I think the real concern on the on the part of Cifius and on some other lawmakers is the risk of copycats. Um, you know, companies that might come in and look at proxy fights as a means to gain effective control of a U.S. company without ever having to go through a Cifius review, because under the current rules, that only applies to takeover situations. Lawmakers are currently pushing a bill that that would change that, but under the current system, that that's what they look at. Um, I also talked to tax experts who say it's really not hard at all to reincorporate in the U.S. Um, versus the inversion wave that we saw a few years ago, this is a much simpler process. And there's nothing right now, based on my understanding, that would prevent you know a Chinese company, say, or even a European company or whatever it is from coming and reincorporating in the U.S., buying uh, companies that maybe otherwise would have been problematic in the eyes of CFIUS and avoiding that review altogether because they're in the U.S. And, you know, Hoctant is an American. I I just question whether it's Broadcom or whatever company it is, how much their allegiances are are changed by where your legal mailbox is. As you mentioned, you know, they fought very hard to be based in Singapore. When for, it was the, for, for tax, right? Yes, when it was the merger of Avago and Broadcom um, for tax reasons. I mean, that was technically an inversion. They had to go through all this rigmarole with their largest holders into a partnership and all of this stuff. And then those tax breaks are expiring and now they're willing to move back to the U.S. So I, you know, when you're talking about issues of national security and staying competitive and are you going to be playing into the country's interests, I, I don't know if you can count on companies that move back and forth all around the globe to really align themselves with those. Yeah, I mean, Ed, you asked, I think, quite a, a poignant but also awkward question, which is difficult to answer. All I can give you is a perspective of one fund manager that, that I spoke to and, and what this person said was, look, if the Pentagon has some kind of a sensitive project that we don't know about with Qualcomm, something that you know is, is really important to national security, then this is something that needs to be considered and, and dealt with carefully. If they don't, then this feels really, really dodgy. This feels like 
a swing to the right in terms of looking at Hoktan's name, looking at his ethnic origins and trying to steer our businesses away from ownership by that constituency. So let's move on to a less awkward issue. Assuming, let's fast forward, assuming this does go back to the shareholders. So Ian and I had uh, a story over the weekend really looking at some of the voting that had come in. I think by the time Cepheus arrived and sort of put the brakes on all of this, about 53% of the votes had been cast. Um, and it was showing a, a real swing towards Broadcom. There was, uh, of the six directors that Broadcom had put up for the board, and obviously if they got all six, that would represent a majority of the board, four were kind of way out in front and two were doing very well. Um, Ian, do you think if this does come back to the shareholders, do you think we would see something similar or do you think you know everything that's gone on with Cepheus would, would potentially swing it back towards Qualcomm? That's Qualcomm's hope, certainly. I mean, the conversations we've had behind the scenes with those guys is that they believe that this increases the level of concern around whether this deal can actually be closed, which is a major concern for, for shareholders in anything like this. Uh, others say, no, that's absolutely nonsense. And if you look, the difference, you know, we've had a couple of sets of numbers and it looks like the votes are continuing to come in and it looks like the patterns are holding up. If that's the case, then if this goes to a vote, Qualcomm doesn't have a chance. One of the things that's interesting to me is that my conversations with shareholders, they've said you know, people who are backing the Broadcom slate, they don't think 79 is necessarily best and final, and they're still hoping for a higher price, which is interesting because, you know, Broadcom's obviously really stuck with that as and best, said it's and, best and, and final. final. Right. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out if, in fact, the Broadcom slate is elected. But I think, you know, to Ian's point earlier, people are just fed up with Qualcomm. They don't like the way that they've managed the company. And I mean, it's interesting because if these circumstances existed at, at you know any other company, I, I don't think you would necessarily be seeing shareholders jump on the bandwagon so much. But just given the circumstances around Qualcomm's business, I just people are fed up. Yeah, I mean, Ed, I wanted to ask. I mean, how, how much of this pattern that we've seen in this whole process is is your standard um, hostile takeover M and A process, and and how much of this is is really unusual in terms of, of how it's played out and how you think it's going to play out. Um, I mean, it's unusual. We should say it's unusual for a start for a hostile to go all the way. So it's unusual to end up at the vote. You nearly always get a settlement, even sort of a, a last minute settlement. But you usually see the company sit down. And that obviously didn't happen here. The vote was sort of well entrained by the time Cepheus weighed in. Um, it's unusual in a number of ways. I think the best and final stuff that Brooke touched upon just then, that's unusual. You know, normally you would see a bump and then some room to move. Hock Tanner's obviously, you know, he's really wedded himself to the idea that first this 82 was the best of final and then he actually did what a lot of people didn't think he would do and dropped his price. He lowered the offer when uh, when Qualcomm paid a higher price for NXP. Um, so he's, you know, he's come out and he said, this is my number and these are the mechanics. And he's so far at least has stuck to them rigidly. And that's quite unusual. Um, and then obviously you have the Cepheus thing, which is is more than unusual. I think it's unheard of. The it, It's sort of the idea that the U.S., you know, in this case, the U.S. Treasury is is really trying to select a national champion in 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 the form of uh, of Qualcomm, and that's that's highly unusual. It's also we should we should note it's unusual because Cepheus normally would weigh in on a deal once a deal had been announced. This isn't even a deal. This is just uh, really the election 
of a board of directors. Now, you could say that if Broadcom get control of the board, that gives them de facto control of the company. But that, under US securities law, is not really how that should be viewed. Because after all, Broadcom could get six people on the board, and those six people could turn around and say, hey, now we have a better idea of what's going on at Qualcomm. We agree with Qualcomm's original contention that actually this company is worth far more, and there are all these antitrust risks. So to answer your question, there are a lot of very, very unusual things about this. The other thing that shocks me is that Broadcom's offer isn't contingent on due diligence, and they're not asking for due diligence, which just blows my mind. I mean, I think back to the Bayer-Monsanto deal, and they were very clear. You know, They had an offer out there, and they were saying, this is as high as we'll go unless we get right. due diligence and can get in the data room. And then depending on what we see, maybe we'll bump a little bit. So that has stood out to me as being particularly unusual in this yeah, case. Yeah, I mean, I would point out one, one thing relative to that. As you said, Hoktan um, and, and all of the the language coming out of Broadcom, the the best and final was a was a, a continuing refrain. But I would ask one question: When was the last time they said that, and have they communicated since then? I mean, I think when this, when they moved from eighty two to seventy nine, they sort of reiterated a the the reason for dropping it, but also that the 82 was their best and final contingent on NXP going for no more than 110. Obviously, NXP went for more than 110. Um, and so they uh, they used that as a way of, of, as I say, reiterating that it was best and final. I think in the time since they have not said that, and look, obviously, if their six directors win those board seats and then say, look, you know, we think there is a deal to be done here, but it should be valued at 85 or whatever, then I think they would have to think again. I don't think at that point Hock Tan can really stand there and say, well, okay, we're going to walk because, you know, we said best and final in 82. Yeah, I mean, and that's where I was going to go with it. I mean, first of all, they've dropped the language. I think the last couple of communications, best and final has been noticeable by its absence. The other thing I was going to ask, I mean, Ed, you've got a lot of experience of tracking these things. We see these cat fights. We see all kinds of things get thrown at each other. Then when one side gets to the point where they think they're going to lose, suddenly everybody's friends, suddenly everybody's stood in a room together in front of cameras, shaking hands and smiling and saying, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. What what chances are of that happening here? I would say almost zero. Um, and again, you know, we, we talk a lot about the sort of different corporate cultures here. And I think that's part of the issue is that you have Qualcomm who are really, you know, for want of a better term, geeks. And then you have Broadcom who are more sort of traditional corporate, maybe financial engineering is harsh, but they are less tech and more business. Um, but I also think the, the bigger issue here is that there has been this sort of scorched earth policy on the part of Qualcomm. I mean, they have set they have painted Broadcom as very bad actors here. They suggest that they're not, you know, they're not a good company, they're not a good acquirer, they wouldn't be good for the sort of culture of Qualcomm. Actually they've gone further. They said they would be bad for the national interest of the US. So I don't see how they now all sit down around a table and and get on like friends, which creates a very interesting issue if you do end up with six or even four uh, Broadcom nominees on the Qualcomm board. I would I would pay good money to be a fly on the wall in that first board meeting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the, the cultural aspect of it shouldn't shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, it it, it sounds like a, a squishy thing to say, but you're absolutely right. Qualcomm is run by engineers. Paul Jacobs, the son of the founder of the company, is the chairman, the executive chairman. He's an engineer. He's got patents. Steve Malenkov, the the CEO of the company, he grew up in that company. He's an engineer. He's got patents. These guys fundamentally believe in technology they fundamentally you know they, they are even though they're not in silicon valley they are uh, you know representative of what 
people out here on the West Coast believe, which is that technology engineering is the solution to all of life's problems. And it's just a case of working harder and coming up with a brighter and a new invention and applying that and driving it further into new areas and, and everything will be fantastic. And that's what they lead with. And, and you're right, the, the flip side is Broadcom are out there saying, that's nonsense, that doesn't work anymore. The world has changed, you don't know it. Um, and, and I think that's a, a huge gulf to, to, to bridge for them, which, given where they are right now, just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. We should just note quickly that, according to the data that Ian and I saw, uh, Paul Jacobs and Steve Molenkoff were polling about the worst of any of the sort of 17 directors or potential directors combined. So uh, whatever does happen next there, it's it's quite hard to see how they sort of recover from this because obviously they have... Um, they have not been popular with shareholders, and and they've been at the both of those two have been at the sort of forefront of trying to, you know, fight the the case for Qualcomm staying independent and being better off on its own. And the shareholders, at least from what we've seen, do not seem to be buying that in the slightest. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. I mean, they, they've argued, oh, this is this is you know this is just a, a bid to get us at, at a at a low point in our fortunes, and we're going to sort all of this out, and don't worry about it. And they make these arguments, particularly on the legal side of things, which I think have been convincing that, hey, well, you know, we, we have to point out that they're in a massive legal dispute with Apple who aren't paying them anymore. Um, we'll sort that out. We'll win in court. And if history is a guide, they will. But the, the problem that they have is that shareholders are just like, look, we, we've had enough. We've been waiting way too long for this. Chip stocks have been tremendously successful for us. as They've worked as an investment. You haven't. You've massively lagged the market. The last time they were over $80, 2014, sorry, 2014, four years ago. So, you know, investors are just saying, look, no more of that. We, we, we don't believe you. All right. So I want to do this last thing. Crystal ball time. Um, Brooke, look forward two months. Where are we at with this situation? And please don't say we're still reporting on it as an ongoing. <laughs> uh, I think we might be. But um, I'm going to wager a guess that maybe this deal doesn't happen, but that Qualcomm's board is still overturned and that perhaps an activist investor shows up and pushes Qualcomm to explore a breakup. If you remember, Jana Partners did that a few years ago and Qualcomm said no. But at this point, I don't think they have the same credibility. They don't have the same leg to stand on with investors. So I think, you know, this deal as it stands may not end up happening, but Qualcomm, I think, will face significant amount of pressure from its shareholders and potentially restructure. And and it's worth pointing out that as part of the NXP deal that Qualcomm look almost certain to do, they will end up with some activist shareholders in their register anyway, just because there's a lot of stock in that and there's a lot of activist shareholders in NXP. So that, that, that potentially, yeah, is a very uh, real outcome here. Ian, same question to you. Yeah, I, I, I hate to, to, to dodge the question, but I think that's a, a very smart analysis. The, the acquisition by Broadcom is, is going to be tough. It definitely faces a lot of issues. And, and you know, it's it would be, I think, premature to say that it looks like it's going to go ahead. At the same time, it's undeniable that the current management of Qualcomm has been exposed to scrutiny that they haven't been able to stand up to. And that, you know, a, a go-it-alone strategy, uh, look, just trust us, we're going to go ahead with things is not something that shareholders appear to want. And therefore, they're going to have, you know, changes are coming whether they like it or not. Uh, you can get more of that smart analysis on Gadfly. Um, <laughs> at, or you, could, you can actually go on Gadfly on their website and you can you can look under the, the Brooke Sutherland tab and there's, there's a lot of it. I've read up on it this morning. 
So that's it for this week's episode of Deal of the Week. And that is it more generally for Deal of the Week. We're gone. We're disappearing. And uh, Jason, Kelly and I are going to go away and think about doing something different and exciting. So do stay tuned to the feed because we will hopefully have some details relatively soon. Um, I'd like to thank Alex Sherman for having the... uh, the wisdom um, and the ambition to launch a show in the first place. I'd like to thank all the guests we've had over the last few years on Deal of the Week and, of course, the wonderful podcast team here at Bloomberg, not least Magnus Henriksen, uh, our sort of tireless producer who produced today's show. So thank you, Magnus. And Francesca Levy, who is the head of podcast here at Bloomberg. Over and out. Over and out. 